And for more, we joined on the line now by Narina Fisser, strategist at ETFSA. Good morning, Narina. Good morning, Sakina. Good morning, the listeners. Now, Narina, this week on the stock markets has been one of the most volatile on record. And it's only Thursday morning. And, <laughs> uh, you know, you look at the U.S. markets, uh, they ended very strongly last night. And uh, this morning, Asian markets have followed suit. Does this mean that the worst is behind us for now? And, uh, you know, that from here on in, it could only get better. Um, you know, Sakina, I would like to think that it is the case, but just as there was really very little new news that sparked the initial drop in global markets earlier in the week, this bounce back has also come with quite, you know, with very little to substantiate it. Um, you know, so many of the factors are ones that we've spoken about for, for a long time. So certainly the latest one, expectation of a delay in the U.S. interest rates because of what's happened, there was certainly a short squeeze in the market yesterday as well. But um, I am not convinced that, that everything is out the wash. It's certainly been a good consolidation. It certainly helped a lot to bring some of the markets to, to sort of more reasonable valuation levels. But I don't think that we can necessarily say um, the worst is behind us. I think the volatility will certainly continue. Um, but I do think that with lower valuations, especially in emerging markets, there will be a bit more interest of long-term investors looking at emerging markets. And I think especially to emerging markets that, that still are showing growth. So, um, you know, I think the change in the makeup of the Chinese GDP that we have been discussing, um, and, and then, of course, the policy response by the People's Bank of China remains in the spotlight. And I think what the Chinese Central Bank has done, whether you're looking at the um, sort of the devaluation of the yuan or the cut in the interest rates and reserve requirements or supporting the equity market, all of these things have been um, fairly crude and blunt responses by that central bank, maybe not always understanding the impact that it would have on the global economy um, because China's economy is now so big. So where in the past they could probably get away with doing things like this without such a major impact on the rest of the world, they can no longer do it. So, yeah, I think the focus remains on China, but then more importantly, the impact that it has on, on currencies and on emerging markets such as ourselves, especially those that are that are um, exporting commodities or have been to China over recent years. And speaking of ourselves, I mean, this week we also had bad news about our own economic growth and uh, the dreaded R word uh, has started to creep into conversations again, Narina. Uh, what can we do to lift GDP and to avoid a recession? And what can we learn, say, from our peers in BRICS and even elsewhere in Africa? Yeah, you know what, these definite concerns about the possibility that if not the entire South African economy, then certainly major sectors within the economy is, is um, heading for a recession. And, and I think we've spoken about how sad it is that the currency that is, has weakened so much provides such a great opportunity for export sectors, both mining and manufacturing. But we saw this week that those sectors remain under under severe pressure. Obviously, the global slump in commodity prices and demand um, have affected the mining industry in particular, and then the, the lack of electricity generation capacity have, have, have affected the manufacturing, but also many other sectors in our economy. And, and I think what worries me is that our government seems to, to back a one-horse race, and it's, to them it's all just about China. 
manner. And I think that approach can really hurt us. That's very much based on what has worked well in the economy over the last couple of years and assuming that that will continue. And I think it's actually quite worth it to look at, at some of our African counterparts, Nigeria and Kenya and even India. So Nigeria, for me, interesting that they have adopted this Africa first policy. So they're very much looking at what they can do inside their own country, but also within Africa, really to to improve their resilience to the weakness in their currency, the Naira. They're also looking a lot more at beneficiation of minerals, something which has been spoken about in South Africa, but we haven't really seen specific moves to that. Kenya is focusing very successfully on regional trade and investment rather than worrying too much about trade with the external world and with that I definitely include China. And then I think yesterday India talking about the introduction of an e-visa in that country and according to some reports that has resulted in an increase of a thousand percent in tourism. You know, so one way for us to make use of this we currency is actually to boost those sectors that can actually benefit from it, such as tourism, and I really do hope that, uh, that the view of looking at those visa regulations in South Africa will receive very urgent and much harder attention, because I think that is definitely something that can benefit the South African economy. Unfortunately, Narina, with all that said, the Reserve Bank's mandate is to contain inflation. So, you know, there's still the expectation that they will increase the repo rate in the near future. But what are the implications for the South African consumer who's already under so much pressure? Yeah, sure. You know, we've spoken about the impact of the weakening in the RAND and, and, and of course, the rise in agricultural commodity prices due to the drought. And, and this all has got quite a negative effect on, on consumers. And we know that South Africans remain severely indebted across the economic spectrum. Um, so, so clearly this does not bode well. But of specific concern to me is also that despite efforts by, by um, organizations such as the National Credit Regulator and even things like the Consumer Protection Act, we still see a lot of credit being extended to over-indebted consumers. I think all of us have experienced the telephone calls and the SMSs um, offering credit cards, offering mm. loans, um, and, and so on. And, and unfortunately, then we learned this week that the Department of Trade and Industry has decided to suspend regulations around loan affordability that they were going to introduce. And this is such an important component in ensuring that consumers do not end up with too much debt. And I think it's, a, it's, it's, it's sad that because of bureaucracy, they are not able to implement it at this stage. So um, these were supposed to be, to be um, sort of featuring alongside amendment, amendments to the National Credit Act. And it really um, would, would require credit providers to interrogate a lot more thoroughly whether a consumer can actually afford a loan. Um, for example, the idea was that con- the consumer must provide proof of income and expenses, you know, such as pay slips, bank statements, and so on, and that there must be some minimum expense norms that they have to adhere to before they can just extend credit. And the fact that they've, that they've suspended these um, for, for the time being, I think, unfortunately, is going to see the continuation of the extension of, of um, loans and credit to people who can definitely not afford it. So, yeah, it seems to me sometimes that we're focusing on, on the wrong aspects of regulation um, rather than the ones that can really, really help us.